0: You're listening to, listen to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Uh, good morning, everybody. There we go. All right. One last thing still have to do with the Andersons. It is John Mark's first day in church ever in his life. biological church growth. We're going to grow one way or another. (laughs) Uh, Hope you're having a good week. Um, Hope everything's going well. Hope any sort of sickness is quickly dissipating or is passing out of your homes. Um, We got to enjoy that last week, and it's just a delight. And so I hope it transitions, as we will transition to the sermon now and talking about transitions. Um, Talking about when things in your life change. Because there can be times in our life, particularly um, when you finally get that job, get that spouse, get that house, whatever it might be, and you just kind of start living life. And the days start feeling very similar, and they, they go on day by day by day, and it's just the same routine over and over again, and it feels like the years can just fly on by. And it just feels like it'll never end. But someday, it does end. Transition happens, whether it's the time that you're going to retire, or time that you send off that first child to, to college, or the time when you pass into eternity and meet your Savior. And eventually, everything is going to end. There will be a transition. There will be a change that we have to deal with. And within that, what is the legacy that follows you from it? I was really focusing in on that from the passage this week, this idea of what are we leaving behind? And not the worldly sense of it, not monetary, not wealth, not property, not any of that, not a great name or anything of that sort, but what are people going to think of when they look to your life? The example you set in it. Because we're, in this passage, we're talking about the end of Abraham's life. And we're going to talk about the beginnings of his family's legacy after that as a result of his. And so the question I've wondered, and I would um, ask you to consider as well, is when your life passes on into eternity, will people look at it as something to be exemplified? or a lesson to be learned from. And when we look at Abraham's life, there's both in there. Abraham did some really good things in his life, and he did some things that are going to have a lot of consequences in his life. So something to consider as we move through this passage. What is the legacy you're leaving with the life you're living? Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah, she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dadan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Ephur, and Hanok, Abida, and Eldaa. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to those of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So as I was going through the passage, I paused here. I had a lot of questions, mostly centering around this big question of why. Why these choices? Why did you do this, Abraham? Why did you send all of your children away except for Isaac? And also, it jumped into my mind. I don't know if you've caught this when you've read through Genesis eight times, as I have, because we always start in Genesis whenever we're trying to read through the Bible again. I'm going to do it. And then you read through, and you get to this part, and you skim right on by, because we've got to get to Joseph. It's exciting. Um. But a lot of times when we read through Scripture and we think of Abraham, we always think about the sacrifice on the mountain of Moriah. Moriah. Or we think about the promises of nations coming from him. So the two main things we think about with Abraham. And that sacrifice on the mountain of Moriah is this one particular line. And he went to sacrifice his only begotten son. That's the line that stands out. It did for me. I wonder if it does for you. Maybe it didn't. Maybe you caught all this and it's just me. But we think about Isaac as his only son. Isaac is his second of eight sons. He's not the first, and he's far from the last. Abraham has eight sons by the time he passes away, and he sent every single one of them away except Isaac. And I did get in a little way why it happened with Ishmael. Ishmael is the oldest son. He is 13 years older than Isaac, in fact, and he would have been a huge threat to Isaac in becoming the patriarch of that family. He would have worked with all of the people in the household for much longer. He would have been much older. He would have been the one that people would have automatically looked to, and he would have been a big rival. And so his wife, Sarah, was very concerned about this. She wanted it for her son. She didn't want there to be any competition, so she told Abraham to send him away. With all of these children, it wasn't God's command that did this. It wasn't God that said, send them away. This was originally Sarah's idea. And Abraham was torn up about it, and God said, it's okay. Listen to your wife, and I will take care of Ishmael. And then the other six sons, we just saw that they were all sent away. And where did God say to do that? All of this is operating out of Abraham's fear that somehow it will compromise the promises for Isaac, as opposed to living in faith that God will do what he said he would do. And the big why at the end of this is will there be any consequences from this down the road? It's a giant rhetorical yes. (laughs) Because if we look at those people groups, and I'm going to do the imaginary map right here because I didn't put one up, the... Six sons that get sent away, they get sent down to the southern eastern region in the whole Arabian Peninsula, and they all spread out over there. And we've looked at Ishmael, he goes in the whole southern region of where Israel is, and it all spread out over there. And I want you to think about Israel today, if you know anything of Israel today, and all the people they're fighting with. Where are they? Surrounding they're surrounding them in that whole region of all of those people from all the way back to this time. That happening today is a consequence of what happened right here. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of fighting. Direct result of what happened right here. Now I'm not saying every bad choice in your life is gonna result in something of that magnitude but they do have consequences and some of them have very lasting consequences, generational consequences. Something that's not even just going to affect your life, but your children and your children's children sometimes. And so we have to consider how we walk. What is the legacy that we're actually leaving behind us? These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. It's a good old age, and I thought about that for a while, and I thought about most people that I've ever met in their 90s, late 90s, they're all waiting to meet Jesus. They really can't wait to meet Jesus by that point. Imagine being in your 90s for 80 years. (laughs) Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at 'er Beir Lahairoi. And this ends the account of Abraham. We will hear nothing more of Abraham's life from here. We will only hear of Abraham's legacy from here. What is mostly highlighted in scripture are the things that Abraham did well, honoring the major part of his life that calls him the father of our faith. Because truly, Abraham was exemplary in this, in setting the example that when God spoke to him, Abraham listened and obeyed. He believed God and he walked out what God told him to do every time. And that is the example of faith. Even when it sounded crazy, and it would have sounded crazy to everybody around him, Abraham still obeyed the Lord. He was exemplary in that area of his life. For all the things that I personally, you may or may not think, Abraham, what were you thinking? Within this, he was exemplary. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hangar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nabaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and they, these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes, according to their tribes, these are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havala to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over and against all his kinsmen. This is the first legacy. It's animosity amongst family, amongst his kin, all of his days against them. It's not starting off well as far as a legacy goes. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Pausing here a moment, this is talking about what becomes actually a pattern through all the patriarchs, and that's of infertility. Struggling to have children. It happened with Abraham and Sarah. It happens right now with Isaac and Rebekah, and it's going to happen with Jacob and his wives Leah and Rachel as it's struggling to have children and intervention needing to happen from God to make it finally come to pass. And sometimes I don't think we grasp the full scope of this, of what's going on here. Because if we look at just Abraham, by the time God promised them a child, he was already well into his 70s and his 80s. His first son came about when he was 87 years old. Imagine being 87 with a baby, and you've never done this before. Not one more time around the tree. No, this is the first go around, and you're trying to figure out how to be a good parent in this moment at 87 years old. Most people I know don't want to have a baby at 40 years old, let alone 87 years old. By that point, they I'm almost assuming they would just given up. They just thought it was a joke when they heard it. Lord, I'm going to have a child this old? This is ridiculous. But all this time, they'd been trying, and they'd been waiting, and they'd been hoping. You look at Rebecca and Isaac here. For us, it's a couple of sentences. For them, it's 20 years from when they got married to when they had their first child. And we think about it. It probably wasn't 20 years of trying and then saying, oh, maybe we should start praying about this. No, I'm sure they were praying the entire time, Lord, please make this happen. Praying and waiting and hoping on these promises or what they hope to be promises from God. And I thought about this issue of infertility. I thought about my own walk through life. And I got married when I was 20. We waited to have kids. We thought, okay, we'll have kids. And we had kids. Mm -hmm we kept on having kids. Now we have a lot of kids. But when I think about that, it is impossible for me to ever understand what someone who is struggling with infertility has gone through. And I will never be able to. And to think that I could would be hubris and so insensitive towards someone who has to think that I could any way actually understand that. I thought about there's actually a lot of areas in our life that unless you've walked it, it's not possible for you to understand it. Unless you have walked through a spouse passing away, you have no idea what it's like to walk through that. Unless you have walked through a child passing away, you cannot understand that. There are certain things that we can't understand the struggle of someone else, and we shouldn't diminish their struggle because we can't understand it. And it's important to acknowledge it and acknowledge that it is a difficult walk and it is something that they're having to go through and work through and struggle through and to help love and support and encourage them through it. And the best way to do that is to ask them, and they may not have the words to express it, but it's better to acknowledge it, to say, I see you, and let me know how I can support you through this. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is actually an interesting pattern that God has through his chosen individuals. Not necessarily his chosen people as a whole, but when he picks out a particular individual, they usually break the pattern somehow. They break the trend. They break our expectation of what's going to happen or our tradition or anything that it should be this way. And God goes, no. And we have to deal with that. He's done it with Ishmael and Isaac. He's going to do that this now with Esau and Jacob. It's going to happen later on in this book with Joseph and his 10 older brothers Joseph will become the patriarch of that family. And then the blessing, the bless, Joseph is blessed, but the blessing goes to Judah, which is fourth out of those brothers. And how do we walk that out? I think so often we look to scripture and we see people's reactions and we have this kind of almost superior attitude. Well, you should have known God spoke. But when it happens in our lives to us, it's a different story. It's a little harder to walk through, to chew on, to live out, and to move on from. Particularly when you had hoped it would be you that was chosen for this. Or when you are the one chosen for it, and all the burden is upon you, and you look around and you go, but what about them? Why aren't you doing this to them too, Lord? God has answers to these things. They're not easy answers, but they are answers. Because oftentimes, God is choosing something specific when he wants that person to be in charge or if he wants that person not to be. And sometimes he's just wanting to exemplify a particular characteristic. Sometimes it just has to be what was necessary for that moment in that time and that person and what he knew he could do with them. And we look through the examples of scripture and we look through what God has said about it. And so what is God usually trying to set up as an example? What does he want in his leaders as a first and foremost? And we're going to look to the words of Jesus. We're going to look at when his, dis, his own disciples, the, call, the called ones. And they were squabbling about who gets to be the best out of us. We're the 12, but who gets to be the one? And Jesus says this to them out of Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant-hearted leadership. The attitude, I'm putting someone in place who's never going to put themselves first and foremost. I'm putting them there so you can see that they follow me. They're not going to be doing it in their own strength. They're going to be following me for their efforts each and every day by my grace and my will. My favorite example of this is Moses. Moses didn't want the job. Moses fought with God about not having the job. Moses was a murderer, and he was a stutterer, and he didn't want to do it, and God made him do it anyways. And every single day, Moses sought the Lord. He chased after God. He even told the Lord, if you don't go before us, we're not going anywhere. And if you're just going to put these people on me, just kill me now. I did not bear them from my womb. They're not mine. But what he exemplified was someone who followed after the Lord, sought his will and his presence and his purposes every single day. Even when you look at King David, who was the mighty man of command, who people flocked to him, everything about him was charismatic, and people just thought, obvious leader. In the good and in the bad, he glorified God, and he sought his face, and he sang to him, and he worshipped him, and he honored him, and he said, Lord, be with me. And when David made mistakes, and he was called out upon it, he fell on his face and repented before God. Time and time again. He was a man after God. And so you actually might find yourself in a position like, well, I feel like I'm in that spot and I do chase after God and I do honor him. But why not me? Or why not them? There's another response to that. This happens when Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's essentially saying to Peter, Peter, you're going to go and die for me. And John is standing right there too, and Jesus doesn't continue. And Peter says to Jesus, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? (laughs) Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Do we own that? When we look around and say, Why not me? or Why not them? Do we own Jesus' response? What is that to you? You follow me. I have a plan for you, and I have a plan for them, and it's my plan. It's a pretty good plan. Do we follow God's plan for us and not look at everyone around us? Not compare ourselves to every other person and what we think should go on, but simply walk in what God has for us. It's a difficult pill to swallow, but I'm not the one giving you the pill. It's God's pill, it's God's words. I'm simply presenting them to you today. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. I once upon a time thought that would be great. <laughs> to have twins that first go around, you're just done. Two kids right away, boy and a girl, perfect, right? I had one child. and I thought, I can't imagine trying to figure out how to have one child with two children at the same exact time terrible idea. (laughs) The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. I don't think we really like take the full grasp of what, how Esau looks. Like I went and looked up some pictures to see the depictions. There are no photographs. They were not around. Um, But none of the depictions give it justice because we consider later on, Jacob is going to impersonate Esau. And he's going to dress up as him. And in order to fool his father, because his father's eyesight is dim, he puts the skin of a hairy lamb on his arm to impersonate his brother. And his father feels an ar- his arm and goes, That does feel like Esau's arm. A hairy lamb. You think beauty and the beast? Esau's the beast. He's covered in hair, like a thick mat. <laughs> <laughs> Afterward, yes, Sasquatch, that's good. Yes, the sightings. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, because that makes sense. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. A little foreshadowing here. So Esau is going to be the father of the nation of Edom. And the reason Edom, because it has nothing to do with the name Esau, has to do with one that he came out all red and the red stew that he's going to trade his birthright for. It's a play on words, because the word for red is adam Edom, Adam. Edom, adam, adam, adam. It's a nickname that they gave him because of the redness, foreshadowing of what's to come. And Jacob's name makes no sense in English but it makes very good sense in Hebrew because there's always these play on words. So the name for heel is Akab. And we mispronounce pretty much every Hebrew name. We make a very English, Anglicanized version of it because Jacob's name in Hebrew is actually Yaakov. Heel is Akab and his name is Yaakov. You add that little bit to the front of the name and it becomes instead of heel, it becomes heel grabber. It's quite literally his name, heel grabber. Imagine going around, come here, heel grabber. We're going to go. And that's his name. And it's an idiom as well, because in Hebrew culture, one who grabs the heel is a deceiver, a trickster, someone who's going to get one over on you, might stab you in the back. And this really is Jacob for a lot of his life. It's indicative of who he's to become. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. What could possibly go wrong with picking favorite children? (laughs) Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That ends our passage today on this happy positive note. And we're ending with issues of natural dispositions, two sides of the same coin of short-sighted thinking. Esau is short-sighted and he can't see how something might affect himself into the future. It doesn't address the needs of the moment, so it's not important. Whereas Jacob is short-sighted in the sense that he can't think of anyone but himself in the moment and how this might affect the future see Esau right now he's a man of the land we're going to go into the open fields and the countries and I'm going to go and frolic and be free and I'm going to hunt and I'm going to be a man of the mountains and grandpa lived forever dad's going to live forever I'm not even going to need that I'm going to have everything I need by that point I don't it's not a big deal when in the reality it's going to be a very big deal Whereas Jacob isn't going to consider anyone but himself because how could it possibly be a problem that he traded his brother's birthright for a bowl of stew? How's that going to go over with the family? And consider for a moment, if if you have children or if you've ever dealt with little children and one comes in, I traded this for this and I think they got such a good deal and their, their siblings over in the corner were like, you did what? Get over here. They said yes. <laughs> As if you didn't know that was wrong. Out of Proverbs 29, 20, on the first side of the coin, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. And on the other side of the coin, first John three, seventeen, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Jacob's action shows love for no one but himself, even at the expense of what he knows to be the most valuable thing to his brother, even if his brother doesn't know it. And so before I really jump into this closing takeaway on legacy, I want to give a couple of clarifying reflections as I went through this chapter. The first one has to do with Genesis 17.6, and it's one of the promises that God made to Abraham, where he said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And when I originally read that, again, I was thinking Abraham only has one son, so I'm thinking all this is coming from Isaac, and it's going to be Israel, and that's where all this nations and exceedingness comes from. But it's actually a lot more than that, because he's got eight sons, six from Keturah, and of them, four people groups come from that family, at least that I could track of, maybe more. He's got one son from Hagar, which spawns 12 people groups. And from Sarah, one son Isaac, which is two more people groups. So even in Abraham's lifetime, he had eight sons. Who knows how many daughters, because they don't always track them unless something significant happens with them. So in his own lifetime, Abraham was actually exceedingly fruitful. And nations upon nations, multitudes, come from Abraham. It's vast. God's promises to him. And that's actually revealed to him within his own lifetime. And then realizing the timeline we're given in the narrative is not matching actual time. So I made a little timeline here to help us walk through what was going on. When they get to the promised land, Abraham is 75 years old. And he has Ishmael when he's 87. 13 years later, Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old. We're told that Isaac and Rebekah get married when he is 40, which makes Abraham 140. And then we're told that they struggle for 20 years to have kids, which would make Isaac 60 and Abraham 160. So Abraham's still alive. When this happens, even though it happened at the beginning of our passage and when he dies, in the end of our passage is when they're born, they're flipped. And he doesn't die until he's 175. So it means the kids knew their grandfather. They grew up with him a bit. He was around. And one of the biggest head scratchers for me that I never realized before was when Abraham's buried. And it says that his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, married him. I've always imagined them as in their mid to late 20s. Maybe a little bit of animosity. They come together. They shake hands, kind of a thing, something of that sort. But Ishmael's 92 years old when his father dies. He himself is an old man. Isaac's 75. They're at a point in their life where they're past all of those things. They're beyond this. It takes a different scope of what's going on simply at knowing the life they've lived up until this point. We lose a whole lot of the context of the passage and who the people are by simply not understanding the timeline that corresponds to it. But it does take time to do this. We have to sit down, we have to sort it out because it's not just given to us. So these were things. These were important realizations to me. I hope they help you to understand the passage as well, to give it more depth and fruit to it as you consider what's going on here. So now this idea, this idea of legacy, this takeaway, what's, what are you leaving behind in the example you've set? And so it really all has to do with how we treat one another in this life. As we walk through life, How are we interacting? How are we behaving? And I pulled a passage from the Old Testament and I pulled a reflection of that in the New. And there was a phrasing used to me at one point that the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed in that both sides of this are pointing to one thing, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're pointing to God and his saving work for us. That ultimately, in all things, that's what it's all about. And so one thing I want to mention here, everything we've talked about and what I'm about to say has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation was completed by the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he came to this world, he led a sinless life, he taught us about the kingdom of God, the wishes, the wishes and will of the Lord and then he went to the cross and he died so that every human being from all time could be redeemed if they would what if they would but accept this free gift from the lord if they would come to him and genuinely repent and the word genuine is important here it's not just a matter of words it's actually from the heart it's actually meant true repentance from your life and your ways and you acknowledge god as lord and savior then you will be saved. And it's the end of the matter. There's nothing to add to it. Everything we're talking about here is is about what comes from there. It's your witness to the rest of the world. When people who are not saved, and even people who are, look at you as the exampling of what God means in your life. Because unfortunately, particularly for any non-believers, God will be judged for the life you live. It's terribly unfair to the Lord that he is judged by your actions, but it is a reality. As the people of the world are looking at you, and they're looking at what Jesus means to you. And this is about that walk. It's not about your salvation. It's about the reflection of God in your life. So how do we treat one another? Leviticus 19 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You will consider those less fortunate than you. You will make sure that everybody eats. You make sure they work for it, but you will make sure there's a way that they can. You will make sure that they are provided for. No one goes without the basics of what they need in God's kingdom. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You will be honest with one another. There's no more half-truths. There's no unspoken things. There's no trickery. You're going to be honest with one another. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You will not take advantage of someone weaker than you. You will exercise authority as God would. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You will do what's right because it's right no matter who you're dealing with. Every single soul. You will do what's Right. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You will live a life of restoration. You will get over it, whatever it is. You will move on. He is the Lord. They're hard things to walk out. It's a lifetime of walking this out. And we get the we get the revelation of this in the New Testament in Romans 12. It says, "Let love be genuine." If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All about this is about your walk with the Lord, the reflection of his light that you show in your life, and the legacy you're going to leave. And what legacy could be greater than he or she walked with God. They did their best to reflect Him each and every day. They, were, they weren't a perfect person, but they walked with their God. Amen.